You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I answer questions on Core, and I just a couple have come up, and I want to share it with you, folks that have subscribed to the premium podcast. We had a big influx after our fundraiser in December, and thank you for your support. Keeps the program going. And there's a couple of questions about different states won by candidates in elections. How did Hubert Humphrey win Texas in the 1968 presidential election? Now, Hubert Humphrey lost to Nixon. This is after Lyndon Johnson's presidency. Texas still had a lot of Democratic juice. It's important to remember that Jimmy Carter would win Texas as well in 1976 with a larger margin than Humphrey. Of course, McGovern didn't win there in 72, but he didn't win any state except for Massachusetts and D.C. From the Civil War to 1980, Texas only cited GOP in three elections. They were 1952, 1956, and 1928. So they liked Ike, but not other Republicans. The rest of its history was Democratic. There was no GOP governor in the state of Texas until 1978. And that governor won with less than 1% of the vote. And then he lost re-election. This and the endorsement of Lyndon Johnson in 1968 in a state where Lyndon Johnson still had a good degree of influence and a last-minute national surge towards Humphrey all helped. There was also possible vote splitting in 1968 from George Wallace. Wallace was running a racist campaign, but he was pulling from both sides blue-collar voters who had voted Democrat and Republican. Probably in this election, he might have drained a little more of a vote that would otherwise go to Nixon. And that may have helped Humphrey win the state in 1968. He lost too many other states to win the election. The, the, that was the trouble in 68. He had a late, last-minute surge, but it wasn't enough. Another question I was asked about states in various elections was, Why did Woodrow Wilson win Ohio in the presidential election of 1916? This is not an idle question of random trivia fact, although it seems like one, right? Why why is somebody asking him about Ohio in 1916? It was crucial, that election. All right, Wilson doesn't win Ohio. He doesn't win. Um, Same with California, of course. He needed both. Here's why I think he won nationally in 1916, and it's the old Wilson kept us out of war. Republicans tended to be more supportive of war with Germany. Wars broken out in Europe were not involved yet during the 1916 election. We're going to get involved the next year. So for right now, Democrats are saying, Wilson, he kept us out of war. Much of the country, especially Irish Americans, German American areas, were not as supportive 
Wilson, despite never making a definite peace statement, had supporters running on that issue, including his out-of-control convention in St. Louis that gave him an anti-war slogan that he didn't even want. And he gave explicit instructions not to have any slogans. Wilson kept us out of war. How could I keep us out of war, he said. Some, you know, German submarine commander can bring us into a war. But nonetheless, this campaign and the anti-war issue helped him win Ohio and the West. The other would be progressives. While both parties nominated nominally progressive people, after the GOP split in 1912, Republicans nominated acceptable Charles Evan Hughes, former governor of New York, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who is now running for president. Largely, the president won this tie between progressives, between the two sides. He had evidence as president and the ability to make a few progressive moves. An eight-hour workday, which he signaled that he was support of by signing legislation giving it to railroad workers employed by the federal government. It was a big move towards an eight-hour workday. The Clayton Act, which in effect made unions illegal, legislation that would prevent unions from being sued as an antitrust, you know, as if they were some kind of monopoly on labor, and also his support for child labor laws, preventing child labor. On the issue of women's suffrage, I think that was a split, and Wilson had made some really vague statements, but I, I tend to think you know, progressive leaned his way. There was also a socialist drop nationally, and this affected Ohio and everywhere else. The Socialist Party was a significant third party in those times, and it stayed out of 1916 to an extent to defeat the worst of two evils. The GOP, from their point of view, was that evil was pro-war, pro-business, but they didn't exactly stay out. It's just that Eugene Debs, their, their star candidate, didn't run. And that's important because he got near, uh, nearly a million votes in 1912. The candidate, Benson, that was running on the socialist ticket in 1916, achieved half of that. This wasn't true in Ohio. There was a drop-off as in the entire nation. Eugene Debs got 96,000 votes in Ohio in 1912. Benson got just 30,000 in Ohio. It's likely those missing voters went to Wilson. Wilson had a head start in Ohio. He squeaked through the 1912 election by splitting up the Republican vote between Taft and Roosevelt. This helped him win a lot of states with as little as uh, 34 or 35% of the vote. So that's the thing about 1912. It's a three-way three split election. You can win states with 34%. That's crazy, right? Ohio was a state that Wilson carried in 1912 with 40% of the vote. That still seems like a small number, but that's his best northern state in 1912. So he already had a head start there in Ohio. The immigrant population, particularly German, Hungarian, and Polish populations, likely helped Wilson. While all of America had a pretty big German population, Ohio had higher than average. 5% of Ohioans were born in Germany. Much more were German-American by nationality. And this was very high in the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. Even today, the city of Cincinnati has about 20% German ancestry and Cleveland 10%. There was more then. Ohio had an immigrant population of about half a million that uh, would support Democrats due to Republicans adopting anti-immigration policies. Polish Americans made up a large percentage of Ohio, particularly in the Cleveland area. And in 1915, the Russians had ravaged Poland likely making entering a war aligned with Russia not a popular idea in this part of Ohio. 
There was also a large Hungarian-American population in Ohio, and Austria-Hungary was a direct combatant allied with Germany. So I think the war issue is going to help in 1916. The other is the presence of Governor Cox, a former governor who was running on a comeback ticket. I think this boosted Wilson. He's mounting a popular comeback in 1916. His opponent, Frank Willis, had beaten him. All right, Cox was the governor, and Frank Willis was a Republican, ran on progressive issues popular with working men. But then when he gets in the office, he calls out the National Guard to break a strike in Youngtown. He's defeated. He's unpopular. Cops comes back. And I think the Cox voters are helping Wilson. I mean, they're on the same ticket. So these are all the factors that I think helped Wilson win Ohio, which was a critical state for him, and without which he would not have been continued as president. What are some of the lesser known accomplishments of Abraham Lincoln's presidency? Well, We judge presidents then and now by what they signed into law. And so if we remove the guns and the fighting of the Civil War, I think that there's four significant accomplishments that we should talk about. First is the Homestead Act, signed by him in 1862. This encourages Western settlement by providing 160 acres of public land to homesteaders who would pay a small fee and then complete five years of continuous residence. I will say this again and again. I say it over so many casts that I've done now for 11 years. There is a prevailing view that the United States is in its nature a small government conservative country. And, you know, at different times and different ways, you can make a case for that. But if you look at the 19th century, The United States of America was a country with not always a lot of money, well, that would come later in the century, not always a lot of money, and the government only funded by custom taxes and internal revenue, not income tax, didn't always have a lot of money, but it was rich in land. And if you look at the way it distributed what it had, some of the policies could be, in quotation marks, liberal or generous at least. Homestead is an example of that. So is another bill signed during the Lincoln administration, the Moral Land Grant Act. This provided states with land for colleges and universities from federal land. This is the basis of the higher education system throughout the United States, particularly in states off the East Coast and the West Coast. Another significant accomplishment. Let's say there was no war during Lincoln's presidency, just some guy from Illinois that got elected. The Pacific Railway Act, which provided land and loans for the construction of a transcontinental railroad across the United States. And fourth, and I've discussed it previously in a podcast, but it's not widely known, sending Anson Burlingame to China, which Lincoln does in June of 1861. So while we're battling in the Civil War, Lincoln's also thinking about trade with this faraway nation, the King Empire. Burlingame worked for a fully equal agreement with China. Even to this day, people are going to remember Lincoln in China and Burlingame as somebody who tried to treat China not as a nation to be exploited, but as a nation to be treated with as an equal partner. 
And that will lead to a treaty, unfortunately, after Lincoln's death. These are four lesser-known accomplishments that I think are important in examining uh, what Abraham Lincoln did as president. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's the longest a political party has held a majority in a body of Congress? Well, from television to the web, from no Super Bowls to Super Bowl 28, from Khrushchev to no Soviet Union at all, from the El Dorado to the Nissan Sentra, from Elvis to Kurt Cobain, the Democratic Party held the House of Representatives. They had won it in a 1954 midterm where the key issue was McCarthy and low economic growth. And then they lost it in 1994, in a, in a year where the key issue was whitewater, healthcare, and sluggish 2.7% growth. Doesn't seem like that low, but more was expected. That's the longest that anyone's held a body in American politics. Yet it's not always what it appears. Democratic House was, was not a, an army that could be summoned for any issue whatsoever. It was a coalition of Southern conservative Democrats and Northern liberals rotating that speakership between Texas, Oklahoma, and Massachusetts. This Democratic House did not universally support Democratic presidents or all of their ambitious plans, certainly not. John F. Kennedy and LBJ had problems with conservative Southerners in the House. And LBJ and Jimmy Carter had problems with Northern liberals at times during their presidencies. Even Bill Clinton who in his first year benefits, at least in theory, 
from having a Democratic Congress, passes his first budget with two votes to spare in the House and 47 of his own party defecting from support of his budget. So it's true that one party controlled the House for that time, but the politics are immensely complex. And there were periods where the GOP party had its way despite not owning the House. There were also periods where groups of Democrats that wanted something passed needed to get Republican votes in order to pass it. I'm thinking of civil rights reform as one. If Kennedy didn't like Johnson, why was he his vice president? <laughs> well, I, I kind of enjoyed answering this question. I mean, I think those who know more about JFK's presidency probably wouldn't even ask the question. But I wouldn't say that John F. Kennedy didn't like Johnson. I mean, that's really hard to, to know. Didn't trust or thought that Johnson was too powerful and ambitious not to keep an eye on in terms of politics, policy, and how the White House was going to be run and what departments uh, Johnson would have control of. That's a better, more productive way of describing it. Like is difficult to assess in politics. Political people are social with a vast many people that they have to meet and and deal with. I'm sure they had their moments. There's a couple of press conferences where they're joking in it. They really seem like a, a comedy routine during that campaign. I do also think that there was more personal animosity with Bobby Kennedy than with JFK Kennedy and LBJ. Though the sad part of that is maybe partially, we discussed this with Thomas Oliphant and also with Chris Matthews, um, during uh, during our interviews with them, it, it might have been partially because Bobby Kennedy was forced to do some of that bad cop stuff because he had to. He was helping run the campaign. Um, but it was hard for both of the Kennedys to do two things at once. Keep an eye on him, make sure they were not under his influence, and also to make LBJ happy. That was very difficult to do. Kennedy chose LBJ, I believe, for a simple reason, to win the South, particularly Texas, which Kennedy felt none of the other Democratic candidates for vice president would be able to do. It wasn't so much that Johnson himself would carry the South, and I think there was a struggle with that, and even a struggle in 1960 to carry Texas, but it would be his job in the election to campaign there. It was also the idea that putting him on the ticket was a signal to the South that this Northerner cared. I always have to point out uh, Robert Caro in his books is very um, clear about this, that LBJ had this interesting political dynamic um, 
we always think of him as an older person, but the key thing to think about with Lyndon Johnson in the 50s is that he was young as well. He was like one of the youngest people to become Senate Majority Leader. He was like a oh, young kid of Democratic politics, but and he wasn't in good health. And by the time you get to 1960, maybe he even appears older, particularly contrasted with somebody like John F. Uh, Kennedy. The other interesting political weapon that he had is that he could be both, you know, coming from Texas, a Southerner or a Westerner, depending on what the political situation uh, needed. Uh, it's a big advantage in, in, in politics. And Kennedy's defined as a Northerner from Massachusetts. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, if he's, if he's pushing civil rights, we've seen, so look, even a Southerner cares about civil rights. But if it was securing the votes of the West, I'm a Westerner just like you. You know, so uh, Lyndon Johnson really carried a lot of weight in the Democratic Party. It was an excellent choice to put him on the ticket. And everything that they had to deal with, with him as vice president, was the price of doing business. I don't think Kennedy gets the election without him. These are just a couple of random questions that I was asked on Quora. I thought I'd share with you again. Thanks so much for your support of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics by subscribing to the premium extra podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Really helps a lot. Thanks for listening.